Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Washington Post breaking some news with seemingly damning information in the Trump classified documents case. We'll bring it to you right now. The lead starts right now. A stunning new chapter in the classified document saga. Sensitive material moved at Mar-a-Lago just one day before those FBI agents showed up looking for it. And apparently, people at Mar-a-Lago were staging dress rehearsals for just such a moment. I'll speak with one of the reporters out with the new details. Plus, the biggest sentence handed down yet in the attempt to steal the 2020 election. Prison time for the leader of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers. And another sentencing for another Oath Keeper is underway right now. And parents subpoenaed their son accused of killing four students in Idaho. So why would his mom and dad need to testify before a grand jury in Pennsylvania? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our law and justice lead and new signs of possible obstruction of justice in the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case, classified documents, according to The Washington Post, which broke this story just moments ago. Two Trump employees moved boxes of paper within Mar-a-Lago just hours before FBI agents and a prosecutor showed up at the Trump Florida property to collect those very Classified documents. The Post is also reporting that Trump and his aides allegedly carried out a dress rehearsal earlier, months earlier, for moving government documents that Trump did not want to turn over. Let's get straight to Devlin Barrett. He is one of the Washington Post reporters who broke the story. Devlin, let's start with these boxes being moved before the FBI showed up. Do prosecutors have proof that this wasn't just coincidental timing? So timing can always be coincidental. But the view of a lot of the investigators and prosecutors is that the timing is so close here that it is, by, on its face, suspicious and possible obstruction. And, and just to make clear, remember the sequence here. We've previously reported that after the subpoena lands, boxes start moving out of the Mar-a-Lago storage area. What we're reporting today, and is a key hole that needs to be filled, that needed to be filled in, is. Those boxes, we now know, come back the day, into the storage area the day before the feds are supposed to show up. And what about this alleged dress rehearsal? Tell us more about that. How did that all go down? So dress rehearsal is a term that's used in sealed court filings to discuss some of the allegations of obstruction in this. And what that refers to is a, a sort of a, a smaller scale version of what investigators believe happened later. So when Trump is arguing with the National Archives earlier in this process about what does and doesn't have to be returned, we're told there is evidence that he takes some boxes and reviews some of the materials and decides, you know, sort of what he wants to keep. And so that event was later described in court documents as a kind of dress rehearsal for a larger, similar event that happens after the subpoena. I mean, this all looks like he is trying to hide documents from 
the federal investigators who are there to retain them, right? Is that how, how investigators are seeing this? Right. These all fit into what some investigators believe is a pattern of obstruction episodes. That doesn't mean they've made a decision on whether or not to charge yet, but this is, these are the incidents that are important and alarming to investigators. And you've also got some reporting about Trump allegedly keeping classified documents in his office. Right. And that goes to the heart of sort of the mishandling uh, crime that, that is under investigation here to determine if someone should be charged with mishandling. And obviously, if you're leaving classified documents out, if you're showing them to people who aren't, aren't authorized to see them, that is mishandling. All right. Devlin Barrett with a big scoop. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Here to discuss CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and also Tom Dupree, former deputy assistant attorney uh, general. Uh, so Paula, a, a dress rehearsal for moving sensitive papers, followed by Trump workers moving boxes at Mar-a-Lago just one day before the Justice Department swooped in for these documents. When you put these two allegations together, um, it certainly suggests uh, what what Devlin just said, possible obstruction of justice. It's possible. The reporting suggests that. But over the past seven years, I think we've seen a lot of conduct uh, in Trump world that looked suspicious. The prosecutors ultimately did not deem criminal. I mean, here there are a lot of questions in terms of the boxes. We know that Evan Corcoran was searching for documents the day before. Uh, Evan Corcoran, this, one of Trump's attorneys. Exactly. One of his attorneys was doing a search for documents ahead of the Justice Department's visit. Uh, it would not be that unusual to move some boxes while you're searching. Uh, so was this part of a search or was this something intentional? If it was intentional, who directed these individuals to move these boxes and why? Another important thing here is to remember is that even if this appears to be evidence of obstruction, This Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland, not necessarily just Jack Smith, has shown a reluctance to bring obstruction cases without another underlying charge. So the other outstanding question is, okay, even if this is obstruction, is there another crime that they will charge? And does Jack Smith feel the same way about only bringing obstruction when you have another crime? Or is he willing to potentially move forward with those charges alone? It's a lot of of questions. Yeah, and and, and Tom, some Trump lawyers and witnesses have argued that people uh, at Mar-a-Lago were not necessarily trying to hide anything. They were simply carrying out what they could consider to be routine, innocent tasks, serving their boss. Um, what will Jack Smith need to produce to prove an intent to to hide the, these documents? Right. I think there he's really going to need to talk to the witnesses themselves. I think he's going to need to understand why that instruction to move the boxes was given on that particular day. If, in fact, it was the former president who gave the instruction to move the boxes, what he knew at the time. Can he link the knowledge of an impending DOJ visit to the decision to move the boxes? Because, look, one person's dress rehearsal for obstruction of justice is another person's innocent movement of boxes. And I think it's going to be incumbent on Jack Smith to draw that link, to get Get to the point that this wasn't just an innocent reshuffling of things, but this was an effort to obstruct a lawful DOJ investigation. A dress rehearsal also sounds extremely organized uh, for Trump world. When I saw that phrase, I said, hmm, that doesn't sound like something that would happen. They're usually not that organized, but that's for Jack Smith, not for us. So prosecutors have been told by more than one witness that Trump at times kept classified documents out in the open in his Florida office in Mar-a-Lago and sometimes showed documents to people, including aides, visitors, um, Does this undercut 
the claim that they didn't know that these were classified documents. Well, they've given four different right explanations about the classified documents. The first is that they weren't classified because he had a standing classification order. Uh, the next explanation is that he was able to declassify them with his mind. Yet another explanation is that he followed the process, but then he didn't follow that normal process at the end of the administration. And of course, the fourth explanation is that he had no idea they were even there. I mean, they contradict themselves all over the place in terms of whether he knew these were there and if they were there, if he had classified them, declassified them or not. So the fact that he has them in his office, that is something that we had had previously known that they were found there. But whether he thought they were classified, it's completely unclear because they have not been able to give a coherent story. I even asked Tim Parlatori this weekend to, to clarify Former this. Trump attorney. Exactly. Former Trump attorney. Can you clarify this? Four explanations. He could not. He could not. And Tom, Washington Post sources... Uh, say that Smith's team, Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating this, his team believe they've un- uncovered several distinct episodes of what you just heard uh, Devlin Barrett describe as obstructionist conduct. Um, and one of those instances, according to the Post, occurred after the FBI search of August 8th of last year. After. How significant is that? It's potentially very significant uh, because right now everyone has been focused on the activity leading up to the seizure, basically saying, did they try to squirrel these boxes away? And now if the potential period of obstructive conduct extends beyond the seizure, weeks, possibly months after this happens, that opens up a whole nother possible universe of violations. So again, we're seeing a lot of increased potential legal exposure here, but I want to wait till we see what the actual evidence is. I want to hear what the president's defense is before we start drawing conclusions about just how much this actually strengthens the special counsel's case. So one of the things that's interesting here is the dynamic between special counsel Jack Smith, who just going by his behavior, to say nothing of those very severe photographs of him, <laughs> is rather aggressive, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. is, that a, is that a fair description? Yeah. Whereas I think it's fair to say Attorney General Merrick Garland has not earned that reputation when it comes to going after Trump. Maybe he, maybe he has in other ways when it comes to going after Trump. And I'm not saying that's even wrong. Yeah. It is a very delicate situation. Um, are these two going to come to heads? Is Jack Smith going to say, like, here it is. Here's my report. This is what I want to do. And Merrick Garland's going to go, oh, my God, help. Well, it's unlikely that Jack Smith is going to come to a conclusion that the attorney general will find so outside the bounds that he has to override it. I mean, think of the political situation that that would put the attorney general in. And Jack Smith, look, he's a very experienced prosecutor. I would agree the picture is terrible, but he definitely <laughs> had. We asked for a new one. They, they wouldn't actually they wouldn't actually give us a. He looks like photos. a hangman is what he looks like. He looks like. like something out of Harry Potter. That's, yeah. that's what we told him. But we're getting off course. The record, the legal record shows that he's been very aggressive in trying to get around various privileges, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, to try to get certain pieces of evidence to answer these questions about obstruction, about possible mishandling of classified information. So he will absolutely be able to say that he has turned over every single rock, every single stone. And yes, he has earned his reputation as being aggressive. It is hard, though, to imagine a a scenario where he will give his final report or present his findings, rather, to the attorney general, and he has to override them where they come to loggerheads. So, Tom, in 2016, obviously, Hillary Clinton uh, there got a lot of blowback, maybe even lost the presidential election because of her email server and allegations, uh, even m- ones made by the FBI, that she didn't take the classification series uh, process seriously enough when uh, sending this material. So this is obviously much starker uh, because this is not just a, a secretary of state sending documents, perhaps with not as much care as she should have or definitely with not as much care as she should have. This is a president taking documents. Is it more serious And what would you say to somebody who comes up to you tomorrow night at a party and says, 
I mean, who cares? It's a president of the United States. He has access to anything he wants to. Who cares if he has these documents? Right. I do think it's more serious. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a Republican, but I do think it's more serious because I think that in Hillary Clinton's case, there you had what I think was gross negligence. In President Trump's case, at least arguably, allegedly, it would be willful. We'll see if the special counsel can prove it. Um, you know, but look, as far as why we should care about this, I mean, these laws exist for a reason. I mean, these classified documents, we don't know precisely what was in them, but very possible that if the information were released, it would compromise U.S. national security interests. It could put lives in jeopardy. They're classified for a reason. Granted, we overclassify too many documents in the United States government, but the documents that have been reported to be at issue here are right at the heart of the core items that we as a society and a government and a nation need to keep secret. And those obligations have to be taken seriously. All right, Tom Dupree and Paula Reed, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. A brand new CNN poll dropped just moments ago. It shows some major warning signs for President Biden in his effort to get reelected. Plus, a new turn in Ukraine's battle for Bakhmut with the Russian mercenary Wagner Group claiming it is leaving town. And we're learning a sentencing decision may be closed for another member of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers, after the leader of that militia was sentenced just hours ago to 18 years in prison. We're going to go live to the courthouse when that happens. Stay with us. And we're back with our 2024 lead. Horrible news. Horrible for Joe Biden in our new CNN poll. While the president leads his Democratic competitors by a huge margin, two-thirds of all of the American people surveyed, 66% of the public, say that a Biden victory would either be a setback or a disaster for the United States. Let's get straight to CNN political director David Chalian at the Magic Wall. David, let's start with the state uh, of the Democratic primary right now. Yeah, you noted uh, Joe Biden's lead in this Democratic primary. He's at 60% among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents in this poll, Jake. Robert Kennedy Jr. is getting 20% support inside this primary right now against an incumbent president, Marion Williamson. You may remember from last time around, she's running again this cycle at 8%, 8% naming someone else. You can see inside the numbers where Biden's strength is and where a potential warning sign is. If you look just at those who identify as Democrats, that's a Biden strength. He's winning 67% of them. It's among those that are independents and they lean Democratic, so they're in this sample. But there it's a much closer race, 40% of them for Biden, 32% for Kennedy. So Kennedy's support comes from not tried and true Democrats, but more leaners, Jake. And then take a look here. We asked, might your mind change? A little, a slim majority, 55% say they might change their mind. 45% say they're definitely going to support who they're with. I'll just note, Biden supporters are locked in. About six in 10 of them say they are committed to him and not going to change their mind. So it's the folks that are with Williamson or Kennedy who are probably more malleable uh, in this race. And David, when it comes to how voters see Joe Biden and another presidential term, I mean, those are some bad numbers. Well, I mean, just your basic favorability, uh, favorable opinion or unfavorable opinion of Joe Biden. Look at how Americans are rating him, Jake. I mean, 35 percent favorable. That is remarkably low. 57 percent have an unfavorable rating. And look at this by party. We looked from December to now. So a little tick down among Democrats, 82 to 79 percent favorable. That's his hometown team. But look at this decline among independents from December. 35% favorable rating in December. He's now down at 26% favorable with independents. Critical uh, voters in the electorate, Jake. That's a big warning sign. And David, 
How do Biden's numbers here compare to those of the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump? Right. Well, you hear Joe Biden say all the time, compare him to the alternative, not the almighty. And basically, they're both not looking good, Jake, right? This is, they have basically the same numbers. Biden's favorable number is a tick down numerically uh, from Donald Trump's 37%, but this is all margin of error. They're both at 57% unfavorable. They look pretty similar there. Neither is a good look, I should note. And then you noted that question we asked, what would it mean if Trump or Biden won the 2024 election for the country? 41% say a Biden win would be a disaster. Trump, 44% say that about him, okay? But if you look down here, would it be a triumph? Only 7% say that a Biden victory would be a triumph for America. 17% say that about Trump. His hardcore supporters are more into him, perhaps, than uh, Biden's hardcore supporters are into him. Yeah, it's worse for Biden, but for both of them, most of the American people think electing them would be a disaster or a setback for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, the current Democratic and Republican frontrunners. It is not an election the American people want. What a country. What a country. David Chayan, appreciate it. Also in our 2024 lead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is set to kick off his 2024 campaign next week with a blitz through early voting states after his official announcement on Twitter last night was full of technical glitches and delays. Yeah, I think we've got (laughs) just a massive number of people online, so it's um, servers are straining somewhat. All right, sorry about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. CNN's Jessica Dean's in Miami, where DeSantis is attending a donor retreat. Jessica, what what is the DeSantis campaign strategy moving forward for from this not so smooth launch? Jake, it is full steam ahead. They are pressing forward. And as you mentioned, we are going to see him hitting those early states pretty aggressively with major swings through Iowa, South Carolina and New Hampshire. Uh, He's going to kick it off in Iowa, in Des Moines. And I think that should tell you a lot. He is going to Iowa first. Of course, it is uh, the first caucus for the Republicans. And and it tells us a lot that he's going to be spending a couple of days there. He's then going to go on to New Hampshire and then also to South Carolina. And this has been a big strategy for him and his team that he wants to be in these early states often. He wants to be talking to voters on the ground. Uh, They make the the pitch that he can outwork any of his rivals, especially his clearest rival at this point, former President Donald Trump. So we have that. We also have uh, money. As you mentioned, he's at a donor retreat as we speak here in Miami. He's got some of his biggest donors, bundlers. They are working the phones, fundraising. My colleague Kit Maher is there at the hotel. She reports that it's a very positive vibe based on what she's hearing from sources, that it's very positive in that room, uh, that they are really happy that the governor is there, that he's jumping on the phone with people as well. And when asked about the the Twitter glitches and the kickoff last night, they said they don't fault him for trying to do something new. Again, it's all eyes forward. As for the governor himself, he is here, but he is also making the rounds on a number of conservative radio stations. And what is interesting, Jake, in the months leading up to this, he had really not talked directly about former President Trump. That's changing today. Listen. A lot of what he's doing is showing uh, everybody that, that he understands that um, I've got a good chance to beat him because he doesn't criticize anybody else now. It's only me. Uh, they wouldn't do that if they didn't think that I had a chance because I think they realize uh, I am offering folks uh, a record of achievement that, that's second to none.
So again, making the rounds on those radio stations, really trying to get his message out and the team really trying to get multiple bites of the apple of this kickoff. So they had last night's event. And then, of course, Tuesday, Jake in Des Moines, what they're calling the campaign kickoff. That gets them another chance. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Miami with the DeSantis campaign. Thanks so much. And two major events coming up in the 2024 race here on CNN. First, the CNN Republican presidential town hall with former U.S. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. I will moderate that conversation with her and Iowa voters. That will be next Sunday, June 4th, not this Sunday, but the one after, at 8 o'clock Eastern that evening. And then we just announced my colleague Dana Bash will moderate a CNN town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. That will be Wednesday, June 7th, just three days after my event with Nikki Haley. And that will be at 9 o'clock Eastern that night. Look for both events only here on CNN. CNN was the first to report that the parents of the suspect in the Idaho college killings have been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury, not in Idaho, but one in Pennsylvania. Why this suggests that a different crime might be under investigation. That's next. Plus, any minute minute now we're expecting a judge's sentence for a second member of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers. This is after its January 6th plot to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election. Keep it here. Be right back. We have some breaking news for you now. Kelly Meggs, another member of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers, has been sentenced to 12 years in prison, 12 years for his role in the deadly Capitol insurrection. Meggs is considered a confidant of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes, who separately earlier today was sentenced to 18 years in prison. CNN's Caitlin Palance is following this from outside the courthouse here in Washington. Caitlin, what did the judge have to say in handing down this sentence for Meggs? Well, Meg's got 12 years, uh, and he specifically wanted to make sure he was addressing how, how Kelly Meggs, the second Oath Keepers defendant, to be sentenced today for seditious conspiracy and other crimes, is different from Stuart Rhodes, whom this same judge uh, ordered should be spending 18 years in prison. Uh, and some of the things that he was, he was making sure he was emphasizing was that Meggs was a deputy to Rhodes. So Stuart Rhodes was the person, the reason that the Oath Keepers were in Washington on January 6th. And Meggs, though he wasn't um, one of the people that wanted to perpetuate the violence, at least that's what he said today. He said that he was just going along to protect people in the same way uh, that he had done security details in the past uh, informally. The judge did make sure he emphasized that he was on calls with Stuart Rhodes, but he still was walking away. Kelly Meggs was walking away thinking about this was just security, and that couldn't have been the case. Uh, these men together were all speaking to one another about being prepared to die, being prepared to fight. Meg specifically used that word, prepared to die. But he did stand up and speak to the judge, so Kelly Meggs gave his own allocution today before he received his sentence, and it was so different from what Stuart Rhodes had to say earlier today. Stuart Rhodes spoke about wanting uh, to remain as extremist and um, antagonistic towards the current government. And yet, Kelly Meggs, when he spoke to the judge, he expressed remorse. He apologized, uh, including to a law enforcement officer who was in the Capitol, one of the victims. Uh, He said he never had wanted to stand in the way and that he was sorry to be involved in an event that put such a black eye on our country. Um, But, you know, the judge really did believe Believe that seditious conspiracy was something here that deserved quite a significant sentence. And so he did give Kelly Meggs 12 years, just six less than Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers. All right, Caitlin Palance outside the D.C. courthouse with those momentous sentences. Uh, thanks so much. We're going to have much more to come on this story ahead on the lead, including reaction 
uh, from one of the police officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th, as well as a former member of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Also in our Law and Justice lead today, outrage is growing in Mississippi after Adarian Murray, an 11-year-old boy who called 911 for help over the weekend because his mom felt threatened by a man in their house. Adarian Murray was shot in the chest, an 11-year-old, shot in the chest by the responding officer. Today, Adarian's mother and their attorney demanded that that officer be fired and then charged. Time is up. We gave you four to eight hours to do the right thing. An 11-year-old black boy in the city of Indianola came within an inch of losing his life. He had done nothing wrong and everything right. Michaela Murray said she asked her son to call police uh, as she was feeling threatened by a man, a man uh, with whom she has another child. The responding officer, Officer Greg Capers, then ordered people to exit the house. And that's when Adarian's mother said her son was shot in the chest. Adarian luckily survived and is recovering from his injuries. Meanwhile, Officer Capers is on paid leave as an investigation in the matter continues. The parents of the man indicted for the killings of four University of Idaho students have been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury, but not a grand jury in Idaho, a grand jury in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. Now, by law, Monroe County grand jury can only review potential crimes that occurred within Monroe County, Pennsylvania. CNN's Gene Casares is with us. Now, Gene, does this mean that the grand jury is potentially investigating their son, as part of a different crime, one that has nothing to do with the Idaho killings? Well, the law you state is exactly correct. And here is what we know. A source close to the situation has confirmed with us that the parents of Brian Laundrie were subpoenaed, not voluntary, subpoenaed to an investigative grand jury in Monroe County, right there in Pennsylvania. His mother went and testified on Tuesday. His father our source tells us, is supposed to be uh, testifying today before the grand jury. Now, this is an investigative grand jury. They do not indict. But what they can do when they hear all of the witnesses, and there are witnesses, uh, they can have a a presentment, which means that they are recommending there are charges for whatever case this is that they are looking at. And also a transcript is formed as witnesses in this investigative grand jury, and it can be sent to a foreign jurisdiction, which would be potentially Idaho. That's what we know, Jake. Let's turn now to the mother of Brian Laundrie. Uh, As people might remember, Laundrie took his own life, but before he did, he wrote in a notebook that he was responsible for the death of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito, another one of these tragic, horrific stories. Now, you've gotten your hands on the contents of a letter found in Brian Laundrie's possession. Tell us more about that. That's right. Right next to his remains, they were found. This is a letter that potentially is extremely important to the civil action that the Petitos have filed against the Laundries of intentional infliction of emotional distress, that you knew Gabby had been murdered by your son, you knew where the remains were, and you never told us, and we were reaching out to you constantly for any information. Here are some excerpts from that letter. If you are in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it, Roberta Laundrie writes to her son. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. 
Now, Roberta Laundrie and her defense team say this letter was written a long time before they ever began their trip, Gabby and and uh, Brian. And it was because there was a relationship issue between mother and son, and she wanted to bond them together. And it also says, if you fly to the moon, I'll be watching the sky for your reentry. If you say you hate my guts, I'll get new guts. So the defense is saying, look, you can't believe that. How can you literally believe it? But, Jake, there is one thing on the outside of that envelope. It says burn after reading. The judge may allow this letter to show the knowledge or lack thereof. A jury will decide because the whole point is, was this outrageous behavior under Florida law that the Petitos were in anguish and they couldn't get any answers or communication from the laundries. So they the, say there was no duty. So the laundries were poo-pooing the significance of this. What does what the family of poor Gabby Petito have to say? Well, they say this shows knowledge. This was with your son when the remains were found. This says burn after reading. You didn't want anybody to see this, but you are talking to your son in very realistic terms that go with what your son admitted, that he killed Gabby. But the defense is fighting that hard. All right, Gene Casares, thanks so much. Coming up, Russia's strong response to CNN today. When asked about U.S. intelligence that assessed Ukraine might have been behind that drone attack on the Kremlin. Stay with us. In our world lead, an apparent shift over who controls the bombed-out city of Bakhmut, Ukraine. The leader of the Russian mercenary group, Wagner, says that that militia is moving out, and that would put Russia's military back on the front lines there. But Ukraine insists... Pockets of the mercenary group Wagner remain. CNN's Fred Plakin reports now on how this change of the guard could benefit Ukraine. Just as the Ukrainian military say their forces are retaking ground on the outskirts of Bakhmut, Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin says his mercenaries are moving out. That's it. Moving out in 10 to 15 minutes, he tells these tankers. Everyone leaves before June 1st. We'll rest, prepare, and then get a new task. Wagner's exit could mark a turning point in one of the bloodiest battles in Europe since World War II. The mercenaries assaulted Bakhmut for months, often using human waves to try and storm Ukrainian positions. Prigozhin trying to prove to Putin his hired guns can get the job done where regular Russian units fail. Even during the withdrawal, a swipe at Russia's defense minister. Prigozhin joking he'll leave two scrawny fighters behind to help the army when they take over Wagner's positions. That is Bieber and that's Dolik, he says. The moment the military are in a tough position, they'll stand up and block the Ukrainian army. Guys, don't bully the military. While the Ukrainians tell CNN they cannot confirm Wagner is really pulling out of Bakhmut, they believe a withdrawal could give them a boost in Kiev's quest to retake the city. Compared to other units of the Russian army, Wagner did fight better and conducted more offensive actions, but this was literally due to bloody discipline and threats of execution. While Moscow's army struggles in Ukraine, Russians clearly feel threatened on the home front as well. The intelligence service FSB releasing dramatic footage of arrests from earlier this month of what they claim were Ukrainian intelligence operatives plotting to attack two nuclear power plants in northwestern Russia. While the Ukrainians haven't commented, Russia blames Kiev, Moscow also lashing out after U.S. intelligence assessment saying Ukraine may have been behind a drone attack on the Kremlin in early May. Behind this is the Kiev regime. We know this and we are carrying out our work based on this. 
Russia using the incident to justify its war against Ukraine, where Putin's top mercenary is regrouping his forces and vowing to return. And Jake, one of the things that Yevgeny Prigozhin, before pulling out, says that he did do was hand over the body of a retired uh, U.S. Uh, former Special Forces soldier who was killed in Bakhmut. CNN asked Yevgeny Prigozhin if he had done that as he had promised before. And in a post on his Telegram service, he said that, yes, he had handed over the body of retired Staff Sergeant Nicholas Maymar to the Ukrainians. And we later followed up with the Ukrainians as well. They have said that they have received the body in a casket draped in an American flag, Jake. Fred, Russia says uh, that it thwarted a Ukrainian attack on one of its reconnaissance ships. Mm. But there's new video. Is that true, what they said? Well, it, it seems as though it potentially isn't. The Ukrainians certainly have a, a very different point of view of that. Now it seems they have the video that it, it seems to back that up. And you're absolutely right. At first, the Russians had said that there was an attack with sea drones. Those are essentially unmanned surface vessels on one of their main intelligence ships in the Black Sea. And the Russians showed a video of their ship destroying one of those drones. But the Ukrainians came with a video today, which seems to show another drone moving towards that ship and coming towards the ship, potentially hitting it. We're not sure what exactly the damage is, but in that video, which is quite dramatic, you can see someone from the Russian ship firing at that sea drone, seemingly trying to stop it. And this potentially could be a big blow to the Russians because, of course, it shows, on the one hand, that their ships really aren't safe from the Ukrainians in the Black Sea, but also the ship that was hit, Jabe, is called the Ivan Khors, and it's actually one of the most modern intelligence ships that the Russians have. It only went into service in uh, 2018, so that potentially in itself could be a big blow and another big blow to the Russian Navy and the war against Ukraine, Jake. All right, Fred Plykin in Kiev, Ukraine, thanks so much. Turning to our national lead now. This afternoon, President Biden nominated Air Force General Charles Q. Brown, Charles Q. Brown, CQ, to be chairman, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs. Once confirmed, uh, General Brown would be the second African-American after only the late Colin Powell to hold that position. Uh, He would succeed, of course, Army General uh, Mark Milley, who has held the post since 2019. There is one problem, of course. All U.S. military promotions of flag officers, all of them, are being held up right now by one U.S. senator, Republican Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Tuberville is protesting the Pentagon policy allowing leave time for service members and military dependents uh, if they need to travel to out of state to receive an abortion. doesn't really have anything to do with flag officers, but... He has been holding up all these nominations, much to the chagrin of those who care about national security in the U.S. Senate. One woman's cautionary tale as a federal judge weighs whether or not to ban a non-surgical abortion medication. Stay with us. Our health lead now, a woman in Georgia almost died after suffering a miscarriage. She says her doctor did not prescribe mifepristone, despite it being a standard drug used in miscarriage care. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports on Melissa Novak's near-death experience and the consequences that could come for some women if courts ban mifepristone nationwide. Melissa Novak and Stuart Day met in Florida on New Year's Eve 15 years ago. We kissed on New Year's and then we haven't been separate sense. They married, moved to Atlanta, and earlier this year, they were thrilled when Melissa got pregnant. They had an ultrasound at eight weeks. We were really excited to, you know, go and see the heartbeat. But when you showed up for the ultrasound, was there a heartbeat? No, there was not. Melissa was having an early miscarriage, which is very common. 
But what happened next was not, and Melissa nearly died. To help a woman miscarry safely, it's standard practice for obstetricians to offer these two drugs together, mifepristone and misoprostol. The FDA says the combination is approved to end a pregnancy. Melissa's miscarriage was at the end of March, just when a judge at this federal courthouse in Texas was considering whether to block access to mifepristone nationwide. No, she, she, Melissa's doctor mentioned that lawsuit and prescribed her only misoprostol. While that drug has been shown to be effective in managing miscarriages, it's less effective when used on its own. Nine days after Melissa took misoprostol, she developed a fever. My fever was really came on hard and strong. Uh, and then suddenly I had incredible back pain. I was having trouble standing. Her medical records show she had a septic incomplete abortion. When she's laying in the hospital shaking with a, you know, a hundred some odd degree fever, like there's nothing I can do about it. So that feeling of helplessness, especially when it's somebody that you, you love so much, we didn't know if she was going to live or die. The Mifepristone lawsuit is still winding its way through the legal system towards the Supreme Court. Depending upon how judges rule, Americans could lose access to the drug nationwide. In a statement to CNN, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, an anti-abortion obstetrician seeking to take mifepristone off the market, wrote that medical management of miscarriage with misoprostol has been standard of care for decades, but did not provide evidence for that. In fact, misoprostol is not approved on its own for miscarriages, and many physicians are worried about what the courts might do. Any of us that care for women who have miscarriages are really concerned. More women are going to have unnecessary surgeries, um, more women are going to have complications, and we're just not going to be providing the best care across the country. After four days in the hospital and emergency surgery, Melissa recovered, and she and Stuart are ready to try for another baby. They said they're telling their story because they're worried about what might happen to others in a similar situation. In a special session at their annual meeting this week, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists acknowledged the confusion about mifepristone and advised their members that it's still available in all 50 states. But if the plaintiffs succeed, it won't be. The fact that non-medical professionals are able to dictate medical care to, like, my wife or anyone it is absurd. It's clear under Georgia law that Melissa could have been offered mifepristone when she had her miscarriage, but obstetricians tell us in various states that under the current legal climate, it's kind of like a fog of war. From day to day, they're not sure what state and federal laws will allow them to do to take care of their patients. And if they make a mistake, they're the ones who go to jail. It's the doctors who will go to jail. Jake? Yeah, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Coming up next, the message from the judge who sentenced an Oath Keepers member and leader of the far-right militia today. This just happened at the courthouse. We're going to have that next. Plus, reaction from a police officer who was badly beaten in the Capitol riot and from Congressman Adam Kinzinger, part of the investigation into the attack with the House January 6th Committee. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, retailer Target becomes the next Bud Light, responding to backlash from an anti-LGBTQ campaign that went viral online and pulling some of its Pride Month merch that usually floods the front of the stores in June. Plus, the White House pushed to combat hate, a new four-point plan to tackle the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States today. 
And leading this hour, the longest sentence yet for attempts to undermine the 2020 election. Two leaders of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, have been sentenced for their role in January 6th. The group's leader received 18 years in prison as the federal judge presiding over the case ruled that their actions amounted to domestic terrorism. And one of his confidants was just sentenced to 12 years in prison for his action. Let's go straight to CNN's Caitlin Plants, who's outside the courthouse here in Washington, D.C. Caitlin, the sentence against Rhodes is the longest sentence for a January 6th defendant so far. What did the judge have to say about this and have to say about the sentence for the other Oath Keeper today? Right. So Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, he got 18 years. And then his deputy, essentially, on January 6th, Kelly Meggs, getting 12 years. And Rhodes, you know, Rhodes is different than any of the rest. Rhodes is not only the leader, he was the reason that the Oath Keepers were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. That was what the judge found today. And he also believes uh, that Stuart Rhodes poses an ongoing threat to democracy. Rhodes uh, made no attempt to try and dissuade the judge of believing that. And the judge certainly did say that explicitly after Stuart Rhodes expressed no remorse in court today and continued to be uh, very far right in what he said to the judge and not saying that he uh, believed that he had done anything wrong at all. Now, the other thing with Kelly Meggs, that was the second defendant sentence today. Kelly Meggs was much more remorseful. And Judge Amit Mehta um, looked at him and reminded him how serious an offense this is, seditious conspiracy. Uh, And then spoke about how he found it so astonishing that American citizens uh, who had been upstanding average Americans before January 6th then became criminals. And I want to read for you the one of the last things that Judge Meet Maida said after this marathon day of sentencing these two defendants in court. He said uh, to Kelly Meggs, violence is not the answer. We have a process. It's called an election. You don't take to the streets with rifles. You don't hope that the president invokes the Insurrection Act so you can start a war in the streets. You don't rush into the U.S. Capitol with the hope to stop the electoral vote count. We will show slowly but surely descend into chaos if we do. So a reminder that democracy uh, is something that does not involve violence as a way to express your opinion. Kaylin Plants outside the D.C. courthouse. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss former Capitol Police Sergeant Akalino Gunnell, along with former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who served on the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Sergeant Gunnell, uh, let me just get your reaction. Uh, Rhodes received 18 years in prison. One of his top lieutenants got 12 years. Uh, are you satisfied with the sentences? It's the beginning. Um, I think it's the, the judge ha- handed a heavy sentence, which is something that I had been advocating uh, since I became po- uh, to speak publicly. Uh, it, it's, it's a good start. A good start. Uh, Congressman, a prosecutor has sought 25 years for Rhodes. He got 18. Uh, are you disappointed that the judge didn't give him the maximum? Well, I certainly would have loved if he got 25. 18 is pretty good. And, uh, you know, I think it's important because even in his, Stuart Rhodes wasn't contrite at all, claimed himself to be a political prisoner. He was scolded by the judge for that. The, the thing here, Jake, is that there's an entire kind of news ecosystem right now that is set up to convince these people that they are political prisoners, that they didn't do anything wrong. I mean, think about it after January 6th. There were a lot of people turning themselves into the FBI that were contrite, that were sad at what they did. And then you had this whole, again, ecosystem that came around them, comforting them and telling them they were political prisoners. I just ask anybody that thinks they're political prisoners, 
how would you feel if let's just take for an example BLM or Antifa did exactly what was done on January 6th? I would guess those folks would not consider them to be political prisoners. So it's a good start. There's, uh, you know, I, I think this still needs to go even higher in this case. And and Sergeant Gunnell, I mean, Stuart Rhodes is not the only one calling himself a political prisoner. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump was talking about how January 6th at the town hall a couple of weeks ago, January 6th was a was a beautiful day. Uh, he said that he would he has said in the past that he would pardon almost all of the people locked up. Uh, and there are, are millions of Americans uh, who believe what he says. Um, what's what's your reaction? I mean, it is, I find it hard to believe that there's, uh, but then again, not hard to believe from the former president because uh, he incited the whole uh, event. On January 6th, a lot of those uh, supporting or uh, saying that it was, uh, these people are political prisoners coming down from, it's coming down from uh, elected officials. Mm -hmm. The same elected officials who were running for their lives on January 6th with the time that myself and my colleagues gave them. Uh, and, and as a return, as a, as, a, as a thank you, they called those people who assaulted us and uh, uh, our democracy, uh, they call them polit- uh, political um, prisoners, which is a uh, ridiculous statement because if they were a political prisoner, they, they should be in China or Russia for, for whatever uh, right. political uh, thing that they had. But uh, I think... Yesterday, when I was in court and listening to some of these, uh, my, my colleagues and some of the staffers who were there giving the, their statement uh, yeah. as a victim, it, it reminded me, and sh- it showed me that it's not only myself dealing with some of these uh, trauma, uh, uh, physical, mental, and also moral. Uh, listening to, to Harry Dunn, listening to the former staffer, listening to people who are still working at the Capitol. Uh, they haven't moved on, and it's hard for us to move on because the trauma is still there, and the people who we risk our lives to continue to downplay uh, that event and, and, and to keep themselves busy and not focus on it, uh, they, they do their job yeah. uh, as, as they should. And Congressman Kinzinger, um, we, we continue to hear this rhetoric uh, from the far right of your party, uh, including you know, members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the leading uh, presidential uh, candidate, uh, Donald Trump, talking about these violent extremists who tried to stop a free and fair election, talking about them as as heroes. Yeah, I mean, it's sick. It's uh, it's disgusting. And, you know, even let's let's say uh, Sergeant Gunnell, and it's good to hear from you. Good to see you. Good to see you uh, but you think about the people that defended us that day on the Capitol. So, you know, Jake, you wrote a very good book called The Outpost, a true story about Afghanistan, an attack that happened out there. And you think about those guys coming back from that fight, the country is united behind them and saying not not just something like, thank you for your service, but the recognition of what they did to defend us and to defend the Afghan people. The problem with this is you have people like Sergeant Gunnell that stood firm, went through hell, truly went through hours of medieval combat. And now I don't half the country, but a third of the country is denying that they even did it and is basically calling them by default the Gestapo yeah. in essence because these people were just exercising their quote-unquote free rights. It is a sad thing, and frankly, 
you know, when it comes to future elections, I think anybody that wants the Republican nomination or wants to run as a Republican candidate for anything has to answer this question. Are they political prisoners and uh, or do you actually believe in the Constitution and defending it? Yeah. And let's not forget those hosts on Fox that mocked those four brave officers when they testified. Absolutely Mm -hmm. shameful. Former Capitol Police Sergeant Akalino Gunnell and former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks to both of you for being here. Turning to our money lead right now, Washington's dysfunction pushing the government closer to default. We are now one week away from that June 1st deadline when the U.S. is likely to run out of money to pay its bills. What might that mean for you and your family? Well, possible delayed payments for Social Security recipients as well as federal workers and active duty service members. Unemployment benefits and food stamps could be interrupted. Plus, disruptions to Medicare and Medicaid payments would hurt Healthcare providers, in addition to patients. So what is Washington, D.C. doing to avoid all these disasters? Well, most lawmakers are going home for a more than week-long recess. As talks between House Republicans and the Biden White House sputter on. CNN's Manu Raju and Jeremy Diamond are covering both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue for us. Manu, let's start with you. Some House Democrats behind closed doors told Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries that they shouldn't go home for Memorial Day weekend, that they should stay and work um, Manu, why are any of them, Democrats and Republicans, going home? Well, the reality here, Jake, is that most members of Congress are simply shut out of the negotiations that are happening on Capitol Hill between the House Republican leaders, really Kevin McCarthy, two of his top allies, as Congressman Patrick McHenry, Congressman Garrett Graves, and White House officials. The rest of Congress is waiting to see whether or not they can get any deal. Already we know that there are still significant disagreements over how to cut federal spending and whether to tie that to a debt ceiling increase, something the Republicans have demanded. The Republicans have also demanded new work requirements on social safety programs like food stamps, something Democrats have resisted, but the White House is now considering in order to get a deal. And in speaking to McHenry earlier today, he made clear that there's a long way to go, and he's concerned about the prospects of the U.S. credit rating being downgraded. The fundamentals of this deal are about spending. Uh, The fundamentals of the deal are based off of the legislation the House passed to raise the debt ceiling. And that's tough stuff for Democrats, and the White House has made that very clear. Uh, But these are thorny issues that have to be resolved. It sounds like the spending levels are not resolved yet. Nothing's resolved. How worried are you about the downgrade? Sincerely worried. I mean, what are you going to, I mean, does it almost seem like it's going to happen? I am worried about the consequences of us not coming to terms and raising the debt ceiling. And McHenry just walked into the Speaker's office saying there are, quote, still serious issues that they need to work out with the Speaker's office. And even if they get a deal, they need to sell it to the broader Republican and Democratic caucuses. Democrats in particular have been concerned about the direction of the talks, have called on Biden to do more to push back and to not give in to Republican demands. And a lot of conservatives, too, Jake, concerned about watering down the Republican position. So unclear whether the votes would even be there if a deal can be reached. Well, that's what a compromise is. But I mean... Both sides are going to have to hold their nose. Uh, Jeremy, President Biden keeps saying negotiations are making progress. There won't be a default. But Fitch, one of the top three credit rating agencies, along with Moody's and S&P, Fitch is warning that it could downgrade the United States' perfect credit rating if there is no agreement to raise the debt limit soon. Tell us more about what that 
might mean, and is that raising alarms at the White House? Well, Jake, the White House says that that just underscores their warnings about the consequences of default and the urgency of raising the debt ceiling. We heard President Biden once again today say that default is not an option because of those very consequences. And, you know, he called ongoing negotiations uh, productive, but it's also clear in talking with officials here that, that the, these two sides are still very far apart. And while we haven't seen the kind of stock market plunge of 2011 when the market dropped 17 percent around that debt ceiling standoff, I spoke with the deputy Treasury Secretary today, and he said they are watching the volatility in the bond market very, very closely. And he said it's already raising the cost for the U.S. government to borrow more money. Cost of borrowing has already gotten more expensive when it comes to us borrowing it the short term for the U.S. government. So as the debt limit um, manufacturing crisis goes on and costs go up for the government, it also means that costs will go up for the American people as well. And he underscored that those costs for the American people are only going to rise as this continues. And he once again underscored that if the U.S. does indeed default, those consequences will be catastrophic. Jake. Manaraju, Jeremy Diamond, thanks to both of you. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So what are you hearing about the state of negotiations? Well, we continue to hear the same thing, which is that there's a lot of talk, but doesn't seem to be much progress. And I would say to... Uh, my colleague, Congressman McHenry, if he is so worried about a downgrade and he is so worried about uh, what will happen if we don't default, uh, if we do default on the debt limit, then they need to give more concessions than raising the debt limit, which is exactly what the speaker said this week. That is not a concession. That is their duty. So you're right. A negotiation is a compromise. But all we seem to be getting from the Republicans in terms of a compromise is nothing. The raising the debt limit is not a compromise. It's not a concession. And I think that's part of the reason why these talks have taken so long and are so stalled. So there are seven days left until June 1st, which is what Secretary Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said would be the day. It could be as soon as June 1st that the U.S. just doesn't have any money to pay its bills anymore. If a deal is reached right now, the law still needs to be written. The Congressional Budget Office needs to fully analyze it. It still has to go to the Senate. Then it has to go to the White House. And on top of all that, Speaker McCarthy has said that he's demanding three days for everyone to read the legislation before the House votes on it. Practically speaking, when you look at that, seven days doesn't seem like enough time. Haven't we already really passed the deadline in some ways? Well, it's not necessary uh, for a bill to sit out there for 72 hours. Um, if the speaker wants to move it more quickly, he can. I assume the Senate can move things very quickly. We've been uh, indicated, we've gotten indications of that. Uh, so it is possible still to do it, but we need a deal today. We, we need to, to get this done. And what that is going to mean is that these completely manufactured and unreasonable demands from the Republicans that they would never be able to get during the ordinary appropriations process, but that they are using the threat of defaulting on our bills, paying our bills, in order to extract concessions that they wouldn't otherwise get. It is true hostage taking, and Representative Matt Gates admitted that this week. And so what we need is for them to actually come to the table with a reasonable uh, solution that can urgently raise the debt limit. We've got a discharge petition that will make a clean debt limit increase. We just need five Republicans to sign that. Yeah. So just for people who don't know what that is, you can force a bill onto the floor of the House. If you get a discharge petition, you need 218 
uh, people to sign it, and then it goes onto the floor with, for an immediate vote, even if the Speaker doesn't want it. All 213 Democrats have signed it. In an in case of, of emergency break glass moment, do you think there are five Republicans, maybe five in some of these Biden districts, uh, that, that will actually do it if it comes down to it, if the stock market starts going down, if it really looks like a compromise is just going to be elusive? Yes, well, there should be. Because their constituents in those 18 Biden districts are going to be very unhappy with them if they don't sign that discharge petition or do something to increase the debt limit so that we don't have a catastrophic default. Well, you guys have Um, some you have some moderate Republicans in New York. Are you talking to any of them? I haven't spoken to any of them about this. I've read public comments that they're not budging. I think it'll be very, very bad for them if they allow the Republican Party to hold the line on these unreasonable demands that they would never get with a Democratic Senate and a Democrat in the White House, and ultimately our our uh, bonds, our debt is downgraded, which will have a significant impact even prior to our default. So, no, they're, they're gonna, that's going to be remembered, uh, certainly in November 2024, if these moderate Republicans let that happen. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman in New York, thank you so much, sir. Good to see you as always. You too, Jake. The White House rolled out a four-point plan today in an attempt to combat the rise of anti-Semitism. Could it work? I'll ask someone who studies this issue. Plus, what could be a quick fix to the obesity epidemic in the United States? And in a town often divided, the United Front in the nation's capital today, to honor those who gave their lives serving the United States. In our faith lead, Jewish people account for a little more than 2% of the U.S. population, 2%, but... Jews are the victims of 63% of religiously motivated hate crimes in the U.S. So today, in an attempt to do something about this, the Biden administration announced a four-part national strategy to try to combat anti-Semitism. This involves increasing awareness and understanding of anti-Semitism, improving safety and security for Jewish communities, reversing the normalization of anti-Semitism and countering anti-Semitic discrimination, and building cross-community solidarity and collective action to combat hate. Second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, the first Jewish spouse of a U.S. president or vice president, uh, was part of today's rollout. In sum, this plan will save lives. Anti-Semitism is a threat to Jewish communities and all Americans, and it can only be combated with united efforts. And we are committed to making sure that everyone can live openly, proudly, and safely in their own communities. We're joined now by Ted Deutsch, the former Democratic congressman from from Florida, who is the CEO of the American Jewish Community. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Um, What do you see as the most urgent need right now for Jews so that Jews can live openly, proudly, safely, like anyone else theoretically should be able to live? Uh, And deserves to live. Thanks, Jake. Look, this, this is a really momentous occasion. What we need right now is what the White House delivered today. That is a a comprehensive whole of government approach that brings together everyone, the Department of Education and Defense and Justice and the Small Business Administration, every part of government. There are a hundred action items that will help keep Jews safe, safe on campus, safe in their neighborhoods, safe in their places of worship. That's that's what we need. And then there are a hundred more calls to action 
for the rest of society to join in, to work together to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, this is an incredibly significant moment. So there was something that was interesting here, reversing the normalization of anti-Semitism. And that made me think of how much, oh, did he disappear? We just lost a congressman, former congressman Deutsch. Uh, all right, well, we'll try to bring him back. We'll continue that. Oh, he's back now. There you go. I hope that wasn't anti- some anti-Semite that turned off your switch there. So, so reversing the normalization of anti-Semitism, which is an interesting thing because it, it occurs to me there really has been a normalizing of it uh, on some cable channels, certainly on the floors of Congress. I, he- I hear nonsense from, frankly, Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, we, it's a really important point. We can't allow it to become normalized. We can't allow it to become part of political discourse on the far left or the far right. And we can't just stand by when uh, when people go on their social media accounts. When Kanye tweets about going death con three on the Jews, it invites the anti-Semites out from under their rocks. That's how it normalizes it. That's why the part of this plan dealing with social media companies is so important. We look forward to working closely with the administration to ensure that everyone of these proposals is actually enacted, that we act together to keep keep not just the Jewish community safe, but this is beneficial for the entire community. uh, And it really helps to sustain our democracy when we work together to fight anti-Semitism. Without getting too much in the weeds, I understand there was some um, dispute about which definition of anti-Semitism the White House was going to adopt. Correct me if I'm wrong, this has to do with whether or not people consider anti-Zionism, that is not thinking that the state of Israel has a right to exist, whether or not that is inherently anti-Semitic? Is, is that what the dispute was about? Yeah, the, the important part about the plan is that it adopted, it, it was clear to embrace, as the administration already has, the definition of anti-Semitism from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. You need to be able to define anti-Semitism in order to combat it. This is the definition that the White House, that the government has embraced. It's been endorsed by more than a thousand institutions and local governments around the country, more than 30 states. So it was important to do that. Having said that, it also lays out hundreds of action items. Once they took that action to define it, uh, it is clear in this plan that Jewish students on campus, for example, who feel threatened because of their support for Israel, who are excluded because of their support for Israel, uh, will be protected by this plan. And it's clear that the idea that singling out Israel as the one state, the Jewish state, sh- should not exist, also important to condemn because that's anti-Semitic. So I, I actually think it was a really important step for the administration to take. Ted Deutsch, thank you so much. Good to see you. You too, Jake. Thank you. Target has a new response after its June Pride collection got wrapped up in America's culture wars. After a campaign fueled by conservative activists, which at at times became hostile with threats against Target employees and even damage to store displays, Target says it is removing certain items from its pride collection. CNN's Nathaniel Meyerson is following this story for us. Nathaniel, what is Target saying about why it's giving in to these people that are protesting pride clothing that they've been offering for years? Right, Jake. This is a normal event for Target for the past decade. This year it has about 2,350 products in its Pride Month collection. You think of hats, 
T-shirts, mugs, stationery, that sort of stuff. A few of the products were the subject of a ton of misinformation and misleading claims on social media, and it led to hostile behavior from some customers. There were videos on social media of people stomping on merchandise, stepping on signs. And so Target made the decision to remove some of the items. Um, and it's, it's said that it was doing that to protect employee safety and their sense of well-being. And, and how are uh, activists, LGBTQ activists and, and lawmakers um, responding to, look, let's be honest, I, I mean, I, I get why they're worried about their, their um, employees, but they're caving. Well, that's exactly what um, LGBT supporters are saying. Target's response really is not pleasing anybody. California Governor Gavin Newsom called out Target CEO Brian Cornell, said he was selling out to extremists. LGBT groups like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD, they're calling on Target to put the items back on its shelf, protect employees, and release a statement reaffirming its commitment to gay rights. So this is, this Target has managed to uh, antagonize kind of both sides here. All right, Nathaniel Myerson, thank you so much. Uh, let's discuss. Um, Nayira, uh, first we had Bud Light. They had made, I think, one beer and you know, with the face of this uh, trans performer and sent it to her, and that upset a lot of people. Uh, now Target, we're seeing uh, companies um, attempt outreach and then giving in to campaigns against uh, LGBTQ uh, outreach. Uh, what, what do you make of all this? Well, companies follow the social trend and what is the norm. 20 years ago, 60% of Americans opposed gay marriage, including the president I worked for at the time. Fast forward now, 60% of Americans support it. So we're living in that pendulum moment of social change. But what the far right is doing is they're taking the trans community, the fact that they have been the outlier, the marginalized community, even within the gay rights movement, and they're singling that community out and taking advantage of the fact that most people truly don't know the difference between gender, sex, and sexuality, and they're creating a movement on fear. Jonah, how do you see all this? I I guess one of the things I just think is like, why why are people getting so mad? I mean, I'm not going to I'm not, you know, that's not my section of the store, but I don't care. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I hate the whole story because I, I hate misinformation. I hate threats of violence of any kind. I have no real problem with boycotts, though, you know, when they're based on sort of bad info, that's a different thing. At the same time, I think Nyara makes a very good point here, probably doesn't agree with my conclusion from it. Target, as your own reporting just said, has had LGBTQ stuff for years. The issue here for a lot of people is the tea. It's not, you know, I don't think there's any such thing as a gay bathing suit or a lesbian bathing suit or anything like that. But the issue of transgender stuff does rile people up, particularly when it has to do with kids. And some of the misinformation was based on kids, and we should acknowledge that. But I think there is a, there's a tendency to sort of want to have it both ways, where they want to say this is this is about trans issues, but whenever there's criticism about trans issues, they fold it in with criti- homophobia and criticism of gays and lesbians, and they use the whole you know, alphabet of the acronyms on it. And it, it tends to obscure the fact that there are specific issues having to do with transgenderism that are different than issues having to do with gay marriage and all these other issues that the 
that that gay Americans have won those battles. This is a different battle, and we need a little more clarity. We just had a, you just had a segment about anti-Semitism. Well, you know, we talk about anti-Semitism. We don't talk about anti, you know, Abrahamic religionism or anti-monotheism because you're talking about a specific group. And I think that is a lot of there's a lot of squeamishness about actually talking about why transgenderism is seen as different than these other sort of forms of identity. It's a good point, and we well, should, that, uh, and to, go ahead. Make your make. Go ahead. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do think that yeah, we should, this is a conversation we should have. We should probably have a, a trans person on to have this conversation. So sure. So so yeah. Nayar, go ahead and make the point, and then I want to move on to a different subject. Well, what I'm going to say is that actually science was there well before we in society understood what's been going on. In fact, other cultures have been in there. I will say that the, the ethnicity of my heritage, Pakistan, they recognize third gender on passports, even though there's all sorts of other human rights issues there. So this concept does exist of a non-binary identity. Science was there, but we've seen that the movement to eliminate trans voices and, and to target students and children um, and make, you know, rile people up against others' identities or differences is very targeted. Um, the Washington Post did a great analysis and investigation that the majority of the complaints against school boards or against books in particular yeah. are driven by just a handful of people. So 11. some of the outrage is manufactured. Yeah, 11 people. And, that, and I want to ask you about this, Jonah, because um, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency reports that that Florida mom who persuaded a, who complained to a local uh, public school library about the book uh, of Amanda Gor- Gorman's poem, the inaugural poem from 2021. Um, and it's now been, it's uh, taken out of the elementary section and it's in the, I guess, middle school section or something like that. So it's been banned for uh, grade school kids. Um, she is now apo- apologizing because she had put things on her Facebook page about the protocols of the elders of Zion, this anti-Semitic canard that's been around for uh, decades. And I guess one of the questions I have is, do you have any concern about one person being able to complain and like affect like what every child is able to see in a library without even like some sort of like serious vetting? No, I, I, like, I think that's a very good point. And in, in the sense that everyone's on a hair trigger now, Everyone wants to avoid controversy. And the problem is when lots of people, when institutions are terrified of controversy, they invite controversy because they overreact to things. Um, It sounds to me like Amanda Gorman's book shouldn't have been taken off the shelf. I also think that PEN America and the the American Library Association are full of propaganda about the use of the word banned books. You know, books are not routinely banned in America. If you're talking about taking a book off of a shelf, rightly or wrongly, at a library, that is not like banned in Boston. That's like not available for kids through third grade is not the same thing as a ban. That said, there is this atmosphere out there. I, you know, I, I credit Target when they're ta- saying that they were doing all things about keeping their employees safe. But obviously the experience of Bud Light, which you mentioned, is looming over a lot of this. Bud Light has lost massive sales and everybody is so terrified to get caught up crosswise in a controversy that they actually just get pulled into them. Yeah, I, we should talk more about this and we will. Uh, Nayara and Jonah, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Look out for two new CNN Republican presidential town halls. I'm going to moderate one, a discussion with former U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley. I'll be facilitating her talking to Iowans. That's Sunday, June 4th, a week from this Sunday. 
8 p.m. Eastern, live from Iowa. Then on Wednesday, June 7th at 9 Eastern, my colleague Dana Bash will moderate a town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. Look for both right here, only here on CNN. Coming up on The Lead, what could be the next generation of drugs for weight loss that may be more effective than other medications already on the market? The promising signs next. In our Healthy Day, more effective way to quickly lose weight is on the horizon. And it's not because of a trendy workout routine or a fasting diet, but it's new drugs used to treat diabetes and obesity. Current options such as Ozempic have to be taken as injections, but pills could be on their way. CNN's medical correspondent Meg Carell is here to explain. Meg, a couple drug makers are working on these pills. Are they as effective as the shots? Are they safe? Yeah, so we are just starting to see the data emerging this week uh, about how effective these pills are, and they are looking like they are about the same as the injected versions of the drugs. There's one from Novo Nordisk, which is the maker of Ozempic and Wagovi, uh, which showed in trials this week that it could produce weight loss of 15% of body weight over this clinical trial. So they're going to be filing for approval of that uh, as a weight loss drug this year. There are also some in development from Pfizer and Eli Lilly, also showing pretty promising results. So then the question, of course, as you note, are they safe? Well, the side effects here can be intolerable for some people with the injectable versions. Five to 10% of patients experience these things like nausea and vomiting to the extent that they don't want to keep taking the drugs. We are seeing similar side effects with the pills as well, but the hope that doctors have about them is that maybe you could do the titration where you start at a lower dose and gradually move up in a way where you could mitigate some of those side effects and people wouldn't feel like they're quite as intolerable to take, Jake. So we talk a lot about Ozempic. Uh, and Wagovi, but there's another drug that could work even better. Yeah, so there's one on the market called Mounjaro for type 2 diabetes. That has shown 22% weight loss in studies in obesity in clinical trials and is expected to get approval for that indication this year or early next year. And then there are more drugs that companies are working on even after that. There's one that's known as Triple G because it goes after three different targets that doctors think could produce 25 to 30% weight loss. Of course, the safety is going to be a huge question. And then how do we pay for these drugs? Because insurance coverage is still not great yet. All right, Meg Terrell, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, the humbling act of service and unity today that I saw ahead of this Memorial Day weekend. Earlier today, less than a mile from Capitol Hill, a rare and refreshing moment of bipartisanship as a group of veterans who also happened to be members of Congress came together to honor those Americans who lost their lives fighting in the Vietnam War. The lawmakers, they picked up hoses and buckets and scrub brushes, and they cleaned the Vietnam Veterans' Memorial Wall by hand. A solemn, relatively new tradition that serves as a reminder of what unites us instead of what divides. Etched into these enormous pieces of black granite, which emerged from the National Mall like a wound, are the names of 58,318 Servicemen and service women who lost their lives fighting in one of America's longest wars, the Vietnam War. In a town so often divided, today members of Congress from both parties were united and came together to wash this wall by hand ahead of Memorial Day. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz from Florida is a Green Beret who did combat tours in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Africa. He organized this bipartisan event several years ago with fellow lawmakers who have also served. 
It's a reminder to us the sacrifices that have been made uh, for this country. And it's a reminder to us as members of Congress, both sides of the aisle, at the end of the day, we're all American. Uh, we're all veterans who uh, were willing to die together just a few years ago. Then we can come together, roll up our sleeves and move the country forward. Retired Lieutenant General and Michigan Republican Congressman Jack Bergman is one of only three Vietnam veterans left serving in the House. I normally come here alone. I never, once I get here, I'm never alone because I know who I'm visiting. A wall full of the names of friends and Americans who did not come home. I have friends whose names are on that wall, people, kids that I grew up with and um, people that I serve with. And from that perspective, it was powerful. The opportunity for he and I to be here is just, I think, very important. And it really, it really pays tribute to what we're here for. Republican Congressman Jim Baird from Indiana and Democratic Congressman Mike Thompson from California both served in Vietnam, but only just realized all they have in common. We're both at Fort Benning, Georgia. We're both married to uh, to nurses, and we're both wounded in uh, in, in Vietnam. And, and uh, as, as Jim pointed out, you know, we're here to work together for the American people, and maybe that'll help us uh, get there. For Republican Congressman John James of Michigan and Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan of New York, Congress is a college reunion. So you guys were in the same class at West Point? Yeah, uh, F1, go firehouse. We we lived across the hall from each other. Our class, class 2004, um, was the first class to take our oath of affirmation after the uh, Twin Towers fell. Uh, that means we are all committed to, uh, to our, our service um, after we knew we'd be going to war. We've suffered the most casualties of any West Point class since the Vietnam War. I wear this uh, bracelet that actually has our West Point classmates' names on it, etched on it, and the interconnection between our generation in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Vietnam generation. And maybe, just maybe, the camaraderie will thaw some of the partisanship division we see just down the road. The long gray line is neither blue nor red. Um, It's more red, white, and blue, and it links every generation, those who understand that we need to continue to sacrifice um, to make this nation prosperous and free. And this Memorial Day Sunday on State of the Union, we're going to hear from those members of Congress and some others about the heroes, the fallen, whom they will be thinking about this Memorial Day. You can see that report Sunday morning at 9 and again at noon Sunday, only here on CNN. Next year on The Lead, the new report showing a first for solar power energy. But first, CNN's Wolf Blitzer's here with a look at what's coming up in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jake, the White House national security official John Kirby will join me live here in the Situation Room tonight. I'll ask him about the latest developments in Ukraine, including those cross-border attacks on Russian soil. There are new indications tonight that anti-Putin fighters might be using American military vehicles to carry out the raids. I'll get his thoughts on the situation in Bakhmut as well, where Wagner Group fighters are handing over control to the Russian armed forces. All of that much more coming up right at the top of the hour here in the Situation Room. Earth matters, $2.8 trillion. That's how much money is expected to be spent in global energy this year, $2.8 trillion. That's according to a new report from the International Energy Agency. And for the first time ever, spending on solar power is actually expected to outpace spending on oil. Solar investments could reach more than $380 billion this year. That's more than $1 million a day, according to the report. Of all the money invested in energy worldwide, 60% is expected to go to clean energy. 60 The rest will go to fossil fuels. Still, 
nowhere close to spending amounts needed to reach net zero emissions by 2050, and yet, progress. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. The TikTok, I'm back on it, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts all two hours just sitting there like a, a big, delicious hoagie. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.